Your Steve Jones Show podcast will start shortly. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Brewers Outlet, your beverage supermarket on Reagan Street in Sunbury. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motor Studio, here's Steve Jones. Good Friday, everybody, as we head into the holiday weekend. Uh, for those of the Jewish faith, you've been enjoying Hanukkah. And now, for those of the Christian faith, it is Christmas weekend. Christmas coming up on Monday, of course, Christmas Eve, Sunday night. And uh, you want to make sure that you are fully stocked because, you know, it's more than just Christmas week. You know, a lot of people have the 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th off uh, next week. Bowl games all over the place, including the Fiesta Bowl next weekend. Next Saturday, Jack Ham, Derek Williams, and I will be in Glendale when Penn State takes on Washington. So you want to make sure you're fully stocked for this weekend. You want to make sure you're fully stocked for all the bowl games and the NFL games and everything else that you enjoy because... Look, it's not going to be, I mean, maybe a little warmer next week, but it's still going to be cold outside. You're going to spend a lot of time indoors. That means you need to be fully stocked from Brewers Outlet, Reagan Street in Sunbury, the beverage supermarket. Imports, domestics, microbrews, best selection of beer anywhere, without question. And you can get wine coolers, water, soft drinks, snacks. They roast the peanuts fresh and hot every day. And yes, the pickle bar, and when I was in for the holiday party just a couple of weeks ago, I stocked myself up at the pickle bar with the barrels and the dills. They are undoubtedly second to none. Without a doubt, second to none. It's all at Brewers Outlet, Reagan Street, and Sunbury, the beverage supermarket. We are in the Sunbury Motors studio. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf, as we now complete our sixth year of the Steve Jones Show in the air. We're going into our seventh year coming up of the show. Coming up today, we'll have a lot of fun. Frank Divers is the chairman of the Fiesta Bowl. He is thrilled about the matchup they ended up with. And we'll talk with him during the show today. Uh, Big Ten Commissioner Jim Delaney, a part of the show today. And then Lee Stout and Harry West, they wrote the book Lair of the Lion. They're going to be joining us as well. So we're looking forward to all that and much more on the show today. Should be a lot of fun. Great to have you with us as we headed to the holiday weekend. Uh, Sean and I already exchanged gifts. And uh, uh, we also gave gifts to the suit as well. Because in reality, we think the world of them. We'll come back. Least out, Harry West. They'll join us in a moment as we continue on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Least out, Harry West joins us. The book Lair of the Lion. Uh, talking about Beaver Stadium, not only as a center of events, because, I mean, Penn State football is more than a game, it's an event, and also 
as a structure, which is remarkable. The track was in there for a long time. As as uh, Harry pointed out earlier, they took that out to then put the stands in there. But just talk about the, the fact that the track was in there and the, the various events that were in there over time. Well, if you look at the uh, overhead view of New Beaver Field, you can see all the various mm. you know pits and so forth for various um, track events. And those were carried over to the to the stadium when it moved there. And uh, it continued to be a dual. And in fact, when they put the temporary bleachers on this, the um, the south end, when they they would take them out in the off season because they were wood. But when they put in a light steel, they actually could run under it yeah. for a period of time. And then when they in 1980, I think it was when they put in the or maybe 76 when they put in the the permanent steel bleachers. That's when they had to go to a new track facility. But it was where all the track events were for many many years. And even even the original Beaver Field. Uh, behind where the uh, Osmond Lab is today, that was originally for track and baseball and and tennis and all that was part of that facility. Also, way ahead of the curve when they did the expansion in the eighties uh, was to put permanent lights in. Today, I still go to stadiums, and if there's a night game, some have permanent lights, others need quote must go lighting, which they mm-hmm. they truck in. What did that mean to the growth of the program? And also with an idea to the TV era, Lee, that they, they have permanent lights. I think it made a tremendous difference. There was a couple of years where they brought in temporary lights yep. for the occasional night game. But after the NCAA lost the antitrust uh, case in, what was that, about 84, I think. 84, Oklahoma, Georgia. Then, yeah, that just broke open the whole opportunity for uh, for TV uh, beyond what the NCAA had controlled when Penn State might get one TV game a year, possibly two, uh, and it made it possible for uh, things eventually like the Big Ten Network, uh, for Notre Dame to have its own network. Mm-hmm. Um, Penn State had delayed television uh, in a small network, sort of uh, run through uh, TCS in Pittsburgh. Uh, Nelson Goldberg. Yeah, yep, Nelson Goldberg. And... Uh, uh, it just really opened everything up. So, you know, with lights came increased opportunities for broadcasting and increased opportunities for uh, night games or at least lighting up the stadium for a late afternoon game when it gets really dreary, as it often does here in Happy Valley. Yeah, I wouldn't tell James Franklin that. No. <laughs> uh, but, I'm just speaking uh, weather-wise. Uh, <laughs> uh, but... Uh, this is where Joe Paterno, being on the College Football Association committee, working hand-in-hand with Chuck Ninus, paid great dividends for Penn State because he was there. Because people don't realize that before the Oklahoma-Georgia thing broke, the CFA actually put together a contract with the NBC, which I think opened the door to like, hey, look, we got to challenge this because the NCAA didn't want it. And that he understood they needed to put lights in because he saw the TV thing taking off. Yeah. I mean that's that's what what it came down to. Um, I asked I asked before anything that surprised you along the way. What was the most interesting story you feel like you told in the story that really captured your interest more than anything else? Um, I guess I'd probably go back to the early days. Really? Um, yeah. I, I, I just I think people in general don't appreciate, and I don't really think that I had appreciated all that much how much football was a true student activity then. Right. Uh, the faculty and administration almost completely hands-off. It was the students 
through their athletic association, which started 1887-88, uh, that began to field teams in various sports. Uh, the two people who were really in charge was the captain mm-hmm. of the of the team of the you know of Penn State's eleven for for football. He was the one who selected the players. He called the plays. He uh, did oversee some of the training and practices. And then the manager. I mean, today we think of managers as these poor guys that are cleaning uniforms and right. you know prying the the turf out of uh, face masks. But in those days, the manager was was just as important as the captain because it was the manager uh, who handled the money and who mm-hmm. arranged away games and who provide and who went around panhandling to get the money to provide a guarantee to for teams to come here. And in those days, it was really hard to get a team to come here because it was so isolated. Yeah, there were seasons. You had to take the train to Lewistown and come in from there, right? Uh, actually, in the eight, in the eighteen eighty seven, you could take a train right to State College. Okay. Uh, but nevertheless, it was you can't a, do that now. It was a long. <laughs> it was an hour trip just to get from Belfont to State College right. by train. In so, fact, there's one game against Pitt that was played in Belfont. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because it was hard to get from Belfont to State College. So yeah. they played it up there. Yeah. I, in those early seasons, there might only be one or two home games in a season, and the rest would be away games, or there would be games played in a neutral field. A lot of schools in those days liked to have a game in in a city because yeah. they could really attract a big crowd then. Uh, and Ivy League schools especially, you know, they'd play at the polo grounds in New York, and they would have mm-hmm. 25, 30, 40,000 people attend a game. Right, and Penn State forever when they played Pitt would be playing at Forbes Field yep. I mean, over and over. Yep. One of the big surprises for me was in the early steel structure. Okay. In the archives that I found at the physical plant was that there was a patented grandstand, a Lambert mm-hmm. grandstand. It was a, actually patented by the head of civil engineering at the University of Iowa. Mm-hmm. And you could piece these things together both horizontally and vertically because it's, you know, it's not like the typical bleachers where you can fall through or drop things through. Right. And uh, in all the subsequent additions to the stadium, um, in at the new Beaver Field location, they were all credited to uh, this patent that was the, the so-called Lambert Grandstand. And it wasn't until the new expansion came when they didn't have to patent that anymore, but they copied that style hmm. in, in the uh, addition of the 16,000 seats when they expanded to the new location. Right. And it wasn't until that the the north wing was put in that they followed the same idea but they didn't they no longer had the same kind of uh, patching together piece by piece uh it's down the road years down the road and the design certainly has an opportunity to change and so forth based on on what is at the moment but i assume the two of you took a, at least a look at the model of what it could look like down the road what two of you, two of you think of that when you saw that uh, this past summer well, I was a little surprised when I, of course, there was this all this publicity about renovate versus mm-hmm. uh, restore, and um, but to a large extent, it's it's uh, it's not renovation; it's replacement in place, mm-hmm. because uh, three fourths of the stadium, at least the way it was presented at the meeting, will be replaced over time. Right. And um, one of the things that I was kind of unaware of is the fact that, you know, you see on the east and west side now you see some uh, chairs, back chairs. Right, yeah, they replaced those, yeah. They replaced. And, um, but when I examined that closely, they changed the tread for those seats. 
because the, the existing stadium only has, I think, 27-inch tread. Right. And you need 33 inches to have seats. And I didn't realize that they actually changed the decking so that they could I put those that. seats in because they have the space that you need there. But it would not be possible to replace throughout the entire stadium right. because you don't have the tread length that you need. I was a little surprised that the the plan calls for taking down the east suites. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. the only thing that would be retained would be the southern part of the structure, mm-hmm. and the the east, west, and north would be replaced one section at a time, and that would include taking down the the elevated three story building, which is the the luxury suites now. Right, but. Uh, that seems to be, of course, it's five years down the road. A lot of things right, can happen. Sure. It, that was my point just, in the question. It's conceptual at this point. Right. But, but uh, that seems to be the direction that they're taking. Right. That was the point I made in the question. Is that, look, it can all change. I mean, but it's just a, at least a starting point. What did mm-hmm. you think? I, I Well, when they first, you know, talked about starting this uh, master planning study, uh, and they said, well, we're going to look at the renovation or replacement of mm-hmm. Beaver Stadium. And that's the first time anybody had ever talked about replacing Beaver Stadium. And, of course, mm-hmm. it was like a volcanic eruption <laughs> right, no. among alumni. Yeah. Like, my gosh, you can't change, yeah. take, replace yeah, Beaver I do, Stadium. I do a dozen speaking engagements every year. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> you heard about it. I, I sure. may have heard it once yeah. or twice. Yeah. yeah it's, but, uh, you know, immediately we began to think of, well, you know, A, where would you put it? Because you couldn't tear down Beaver Stadium and build a new one in right. between two seasons. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you could resolve that, um, you know, how much would it cost? And, of course, new stadiums in uh, in cities for professional football, baseball uh, are, you know, they're not just three, four hundred million. They're they're you're up in the billion dollar. range. Yeah. Yankee and, Stadium when Penn State played the pinstripe yeah. was a one point five billion yeah. dollar structure. And uh, those can't be built without uh, enormous amounts of uh, local mm-hmm. government investment and bonds and so right. forth. And you know, Penn State's not going to get that. Uh, and so uh, tremendous reliance on uh, uh, not just gate receipts, but uh, boxes and dogs and what ha- yeah. and parking. Uh, it's going to take a tremendous amount of rev- of uh, fundraising. Other stadiums that the two of you have been to, which ones have fascinated you? Other, now besides here, other places you've been to, you went, hmm. What about you, Harry? Or um, Lee, I mean. Well, I, I'm, I have been to Ibbets Field, Ooh. and that was, uh, that, was, that was 55, you know, right. Snyder, Pee Wee Reese, Roy Campanella. Right. They I, won the World Series that year. That's exactly right. Uh, to my father, who was a Yankees fan. Yeah. Uh, but that was, uh, was a um, you know, I think I've been to uh, me um, mm-hmm. the you know the 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 stadiums like uh, Three Rivers Stadium, Bush Stadium, that giant multi-purpose bowls yeah. that uh, uh, you know were uh, indistinguishable and undistinguished, uh, mm-hmm. and so uh, Ohio Stadium uh, was was a very interesting. Mm-hmm. I, d- right. I don't go to a lot of bowl games or away right, games. Sure. Uh, but uh, I thought that was really pretty fascinating. Game was at Ebbets Field in 1947 with Jackie Robinson. Wow! And I was a kid then, you know, 10 or 11 years old. Experience. Mm-hmm. One of the first experiences I had was at Fenway Park, sitting behind them. Yeah, yeah, they, they still exist, Harry. Yeah. They, they uh, do. I've probably been to 50 to 100 games at Fenway Park. <laughs> I, I've been behind but every column. <laughs> I did graduate work at the University of Illinois, and that's uh, yeah. you know that's a classic. Memorial Stadium. Yes, and, it is. And, I mean, it's it's old, but it's 
it's classic, and it uh, they've they've renovated it a good bit now. But mm-hmm. when I was there as a student, I was impressed with that back in the '60s. Lee Stout, Harry West, joining us here in the Sunbury Motor Studio. Great to have both of them here in the Sunbury Motor Studio with us today. The book is entitled "Lair of the Lion." And uh, we'll be talking with them more in the next half hour. We're looking forward to getting their insights on a lot of different areas when it comes to Beaver Stadium, not only the structure, which is different. Uh, Beaver Stadium happens to be, uh, we always refer to it as the erector set, and there's a reason for that. I believe it's seven independent parts coming together as one. I mean, I mean really, uh, everything is sort of attached, and it looks like it's one, but it's not. And the press box is sort of attached to the stadium. The cantilever deck on the north end is sort of you know, part of the stadium, but it's it's completely independent. The building at the south end is independent, but they just connect parts. That's what they do. All right, more with Lee and Harry in the next half hour. Frank Divers from the Fiesta Bowl coming up at 4.06, then Jim Delaney. Uh, let's uh, tell everybody that this is the time to stock up at Brewer's Outlet, Reagan Street in Sunbury, the beverage supermarket, import domestics, microbrews, best selection of beer anywhere, as my partner Jack Ham would say, without a doubt. Wine coolers, water, soft drink, snacks. They roast their peanuts fresh and hot every day. The pickle bar is indeed second to none led by the barrels and the dills. Brewer's Outlet, Reagan Street in Sunbury, the beverage supermarket. I'm in the Sunbury Motors studio, Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury, Sunbury Motors, Key Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. All this that we've done now for six years has been because of great sponsors like Brewers Outlet and Sunbury Motors sponsoring this studio. More with Lee and Harry next half hour here on News Radio 1070 WKOK. When it comes to car buying, there's the other guy's way, and then there's the SMC way. The other guys force you into a vehicle you really don't want. The Sunbury Motors way lets you take the time you need to browse, ask questions, and take the test drive and think on it. For over 100 years, the Merth family and all their employees have made your experience the most pleasant one you'll ever have. The other guys won't offer you the best price for your trade, no matter how much they say they will. The SMC way is their promise to provide you with the most money the market shows your vehicle is worth. The SMC way is to offer you all applicable factory rebates on new vehicles and generous discounts. Looking for a pre-owned vehicle? The SMC way checks each vehicle in a 200-mile radius to determine the lowest price, then beat it. It's the lowest price promise, just part of the SMC way. The choice is up to you. The other guy's way or the SMC way? The SMC way wins every time. Sunbury Motors Company in the North 4th Street Auto Plaza, Sunbury, and at sunburymotors.com. Selling more cars and satisfying more customers for over 100 years. Party time, game time, or just fun time. Doesn't matter what time it is, because it's Brewer's Outlet time. The Beverage Supermarket has the area's largest beer selection, imports, microbrews, ciders, and domestics. Pick from over 100 ice-cold 12-packs and dozens of 24-ounce singles. Soda, snacks, hot sauces, fresh roasted peanuts. Make it one-stop party shopping, and don't forget the pickle bar. So whatever you're celebrating or just doing it up, Brewer's Outlet, Reagan Street, Sunbury, wants to see you. And thank you for your years of patronage taking your calls at 800-795-9565 this is the steve jones show on news radio 1070 wkok now from the sunbury motor studio here's steve jones happy holidays everybody and merry christmas as we get to the big uh, weekend here christmas eve on uh, Sunday night, Christmas Day coming up on Monday. Make sure you're fully stocked for the weekend and for everything afterward because next week is just, a, I think, a relaxed week for most. Not everybody. Obviously, there's some of you have to work next week. We're doing shows next week. I know that. 
We'll be back here on Tuesday, as a matter of fact. And we've got a couple of special shows coming up for you as well. We'll tell you about that as the day goes along here. Uh, today's show brought to you by Brewers Outlet, Reagan Street in Sunbury, the beverage supermarket, imports, domestics, microbrews, best selection of beer anywhere, wine coolers, water, soft drinks, snacks. They roast their peanuts fresh and hot every day. And the pickle bar is indeed second to none. All at Brewers Outlet, Reagan Street in Sunbury, the beverage supermarket. Stock up for the holidays now. Go over in droves. They have plenty of people there to help you. The store so well laid out. And we are in the Sunbury Motors studio. Can't thank Sunbury Motors enough. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Key Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. This day in sports history, then back to Harry West and Lee Stout, the book Lair of the Lion. I will not make you guys wait much longer here, but I have to get to this. The Saint New Orleans Saints became the 16th NFL franchise granted on this date in 1966. 1974, the Miami Dolphins won at the Orange Bowl, which was their home field at the time, for the 31st consecutive time. After beating Illinois in the Liberty Bowl, Bear Bryant announced his retirement as the head coach at Alabama on this date in 1982. He then passed away the next month. On January 26th, 83. One of those you remember where you were. I was in Philadelphia when I found out that time doing Penn State basketball at the time. Arthur Ashe named the Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year in 1992. And the 49ers retired Joe Montana's number 16 at halftime of a game with the Broncos in 1997. With that, we bring back Lee Stout, Harry West, the book Lair of the Lion. That'd be a great holiday gift for somebody. If you're looking for, quote, a last-second gift, guys, I think that would be great. Harry, how did you – I want to start with you. I mean, you're the engineer here. I mean, Lee's the historian. So, Harry, how did you get involved in a project like this, and what was your primary interest? Well, it all started with uh, a course that I taught on the history of structures. Okay. And we started with Stonehenge and went to modern structures, but tucked in there was a lecture on – Beaver Stadium because it's interesting, it's big, and it has a lot of challenging structural problems. And this sort of morphed in then to something student groups wanted and town groups wanted. My son said at one point, Dad, you ought to write a book. And I said, no, I don't think anybody's interested in the structure. But then Lee and I got talking at the gym one day and thought about how we could bring the structural part into the history of of uh, sports venues and Penn State planning and so forth, and that was the beginning of it. Well, I believe the place is seven different structures, isn't it? Oh, it's it's glued together in many yeah. ways. I mean, it's I think it's seven different structures. Yeah. Hey, yeah. hey, 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 that's a book unto itself, Harry. Yeah. 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 Well, my son said, you know, you're a Brooklyn Dodger fan, Dad. He said, you know, people always write read things about the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's the same with Beaver Stadium, but yeah. I didn't believe him until I got together with Lee and thought we could put this together in a different way. Well, I'm about ten days away. I'm going to the Barclays Center, which is where the Brooklyn Nets play. I'm going to do two games there. What's interesting about that spot is that was the spot that they chose for the new Ebbets Field, and the Brooklyn uh, Council said no. Mm-hmm. So I always thought that to be interesting. Now they've got this place. Lee, what about your part? Now the history part. This goes back to you with archives for years over at the library. Mm-hmm. So then you brought that part in. Yeah. I uh, When Harry talked to me about the possibility of doing something uh, with the history of stadium and of the stadium and how we might expand that, 
uh, I immediately thought of all the wonderful books there are about the history of Penn State football going back to Ridge Riley and mm-hmm. uh, Rappaport and Lou Prado and all, you know, all the many other sports writers that have written about that. And I said, well, gosh, they don't need another one of those from somebody who really doesn't know a lot about Penn State football other than having watched it since right. 1965. Uh, but I thought, well, if we could fit the history of the STEM as a venue – uh, and the and the sport that was played there, and actually multiple sports, mm-hmm. um, into the history of the university, how it fits, and then how the uh, the game has evolved, how the the game at Beaver at Beaver Field and Beaver Stadium has evolved, and how the fans' experience has evolved, that that could make could make an interesting book. Well, Joe Paterno told Rip Engel when they moved Beaver Field over to the east end of campus that that would be the ruination of Penn State football as we know it. Yeah. Uh, what turned it into, obviously the winning football was a big part of it, but what turned the venue into an event area as uh, more than just being a football stadium? I think that uh, that the location, when you quoted Joe as saying this would be the biggest mistake that they ever made for Penn State football, he was talking about the fact that it was being moved out into a pasture. Right. Uh, East Halls, for all intents and purposes, didn't even exist at that point. Right. Uh, the Shields building, you know, the kind of central location of all those in, uh, administrative functions didn't exist at that point. Uh, there was pasture and there were some barns and corn cribs and so forth. Uh, but they had the wisdom to see that uh, as – uh, the attendance was increasing uh, as the uh, number of students and number of alumni were increasing that more and more people wanted to c- come see Penn State football. They were improving the road system so people could get here. Uh, and they were experiencing something that they didn't have at New Beaver Field where most people walked to the game. Right. Uh, now more people were going to drive to the game. They didn't have parking uh, back and in the center of campus for this. So this would be good not only because they would have an unlimited possibility of expansion uh, if Penn State did well and more and more people wanted to come, but also they'd be able to park a lot of cars there. Uh, And that uh, opened up uh, a space for a lot of additional purposes besides uh, football and track. In fact, I can tell everybody, I think Beaver Stadium of the Big Ten easily has the best parking situation even now with 110,000 seats. The uh, jacking up of the seats, taking out the track, jacking up of the seats, putting the concrete in at the bottom. Harry, structurally, how innovative was that plan to do that back in, what, 76, 77? Very innovative. In fact, it, it had never been done before. Nothing like that's ever been done since. And uh, that was by far the most challenging um, expansion because they couldn't begin it until the end of the 77 season. They had to have it finished by the beginning of the 78 season. And it's a mammoth undertaking. And uh, I went to Harrisburg and interviewed um, the gentleman who was the foreman of the job at the time. And he said it was the most challenging job he ever had. They had a strike on campus, which kept his workers out. They had bad weather. And he said they were putting the hardware in the locker room doors the night before the first game. Mm-hmm. But he said it was by far the most challenging problem he ever had. Who came up with that idea? I mean, you're sitting there. The track's there. 
Now, today, what they do today is, like, take Ohio State, Michigan State. They've, they've lowered the field. They've mm-hmm. taken the track out. They've lowered the field, and that's how they've done that. They didn't do this here. Who came up with the idea of, like, let's uh, jack it up a section at a time and then build it? Well, I'm, I'm not sure who came up with the idea. I know that the Baker was uh, – Michael Baker Farm yeah. was the one then. They they actually thought about lowering the field as one of the possibilities, but we're concerned about drainage problems and things of that nature. But uh, – Clarence Knudsen, who was a person with uh, Michael Baker at the time, said it was the only time it had ever been done. And I think the who actually gets credit for originating the idea, I don't know. But it was certainly novel. Well, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. It really is. I mean, I mean that that was done 40 years ago. Yes. I mean, my goodness, 40 years, and it's, it stood the test of time. What did you find out in this, Lee, that you didn't know before? I would say the... Um, I knew about the moves uh, from Old Beaver Field to New Beaver Field to Beaver Stadium. Uh, one of the things that really struck me when we were first talking about uh, the move from New Beaver Field to Beaver Stadium, I knew they had taken the grandstands apart and trucked them out there. Uh, but what, it, what I sort of never noticed was that they had built, what, 16,000 new seats. Yeah. But they were up in the air. And the old grandstands were fit in below them. And I remember first time seeing a picture of all these stands up in the air and thinking, wait a minute, what what's going on there? And that's when it struck me that, uh, you know, even this was an innovative idea. And if it hadn't been for the type of grandstand uh, that had been used beginning in 1934 when they started to switch over to steel from wood, uh, it would have been impossible. I was just at the Ohio State game and a fair amount of time looking at the at the grandstand and the construction, and it's pretty much all concrete. Yeah. Um, Penn State had actually talked about that uh, beginning in the 1930s of building a permanent stadium about where the bus station is today right. uh, and uh, uh, eventually abandoned it. They couldn't afford it in the 30s, and they didn't have time to think about it in the 40s. By the time the 50s came along, they'd already expanded New Beaver Field in 1949 to a horseshoe. Right. And at that point, they realized they couldn't expand it anymore. It just the wouldn't, wouldn't fit. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so moving in 59 was really the only option they had. Uh, and they it would have been much more difficult, much more expensive if they hadn't had the kind of steel stands that they did. Right. Uh, I th- when it rained, you can see the 30,000 seats. Yeah, I've yeah. been in there. I, as you know, I've been in there more than most people have yeah. for scrimmages, <laughs> things like that. And if you sit in the press box and it rains, you can see where the 30,000 seats are. Just enough mm-hmm. coloration difference mm-hmm. where you can see where it is. It's interesting. Yes. Very interesting. Some of the images that you catch over the years are interesting when you see they replaced the wood benches with aluminum. Yeah, That took place over about a 10-year period. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the images show brown and Aluminum colors, you know, at different sections of the stadium. Uh, how challenging was it uh, putting the scoreboards on there? I, no, I, let me let me let me step back one second. How challenging was it to fix the north deck once that was built? Because there were cracks in the concrete. At, you know. Well, it was very challenging. I mean, that uh, of the twelve um, concrete bents that radiate out, eight of them. Had cracks. Right. And this is a cantilever deck, so it's not attached to the That's rest right. of the stadium. That's right. It's not attached in any way. It's it's anchored on this large on these large uh, 
reinforced concrete vents, and the cracks were at the interface between the corbels, which supported the pedestrian rampway, and the uh, and the frame itself. And uh, you know there were all kinds of arguments about whether the forms were taken off too early or inadequately reinforced and so forth. But again, they looked at several possibilities, and the one they came up with was this post tensioning, right. which basically closed the cracks and prevented additional cracks from developing. And um, timing was a big problem because they already had 10,000 seats sold for the Cincinnati game. Right. But um, it was a very challenging thing, and I, I think the solution is a, is a good solution. It's a little bit uh, unattractive and raises a lot of questions, but it's very effective. Harry, the stadium's in seven parts. There's a lot of parts of it. That <laughs> well, it yeah, it doesn't... Uh, it's not an attractive structure. Yeah. No. I, <laughs> Although people will challenge you when you say that. Oh, yeah. The real fans think it's, oh, it's, it's look, beautiful. It's, it's our wonderful. place. Yeah. This well, is our place. What the heck? You know, inside, it looks beautiful. Absolutely. And it has 110,000 students. Absolutely. And when, yeah. when one guy's going 69 yards for a touchdown in the second play of the game, it looks awesome. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> uh, Lee... Track the success of Penn State football with, with the size of the stadium. I mean, it, does one dovetail the other, in your opinion? Uh, actually, pretty much it does, I think. Uh, I like to go back to the to the beginnings of Penn State football, maybe, maybe because there's nobody alive on, to contradict on, on me. The lawn, <laughs> on the lawn with <laughs> Bucknell? On the lawn, but, uh, you know, by 1893, they had, a, they had a football field and a grandstand. About 500 seats, maybe. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Uh, they did have showers, though. They brought water down from Ag Hill and ah, set up showers in, under nice. the grandstand. So, you know, all the comforts of, that you would want. Yes. But uh, uh, you know, by that point, they were at that point they were playing teams like Bucknell and Dickinson. Yeah. Uh, as success increased, they began to play uh, more regional opponents. They eventually began to play uh, Army and Navy, uh, and uh, um, and 19, then got 19, into nineteen twelve went out to Ohio State, and Ohio mm -hmm. State quit. Yeah, and uh, they got into uh, playing the Ivy League schools, which was the right. SEC of its day. Right. Uh, they, they were the national champions repeatedly. They had most of the All-American players. So Harvard, Yale, Penn, and Princeton uh, were the, you know, they were the big opponents. If Penn State could tie Harvard, mm -hmm. uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, reason for a major celebration. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, as as the team improved, uh, the stadium, uh, the number of people who wanted to come in increased, they added more and more wooden grandstands. Now, the big change came in 1930 when President Hetzel decided they were going to de-emphasize right. football. Yeah, the people realize in the 30s, when you look at the records, like, wow, the records weren't yeah, very what good. what happened? There's nine straight losing seasons. They said they de-emphasized football. Yeah, and uh, and it, it wasn't just, uh, um, you know, the, the number of seats decreased because they, they took mm -hmm. down some of the wooden stands. They began to build steel, but very slowly, uh, you know, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 seats at a, uh, a year. Uh, but they were playing fewer games. They were playing lesser opponents, and they weren't having very much success. Uh, by 1939, 1940, 41, they were being able to turn it around, but then the war came in, messed everything up. And it wasn't until the veterans started to come back and you had that 47 team that went yeah. to the Cotton Bowl. Right. That was really kind of the turning point 
uh, from that point on, things began to to improve. All right. But I think the expansion of Beaver Stadium can be pretty easily traced with the success. I think it was really right. hand in glove. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. The hand because there's more demand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More people want to go and see it. Where have your respective seats been over the years, and how often have you changed, if at all? Well, I, I mean, starting as a student, um, back when Beaver Stadium was a horseshoe, um, we sat pretty close to the the uh, the you know the round part of the horseshoe. Yeah. Um, that was where the freshmen sat, and then gradually, as you you know you went up, you moved up a section each yeah. year. Um, after you know, when I was a grad student and uh, an early faculty member, we, you know, we'd we'd scavenge and get seats wherever we could, and mm-hmm. uh, usually they weren't very good. When I really began to buy season tickets, we were very fortunate. We had friends who had tickets that they shared with us, and mm-hmm. was sitting on the forty-five yard line, and mm-hmm. that was really nice. Yeah. Uh, and then recently, I've been sitting in the. Sat in the end, in the north end zone for a while. We were, but we were under the deck, so we were dry and brilliant games. And, but now we're in uh, W H. Uh, so oh, very nice. Yeah. What about you, Herb? Well, as a student, my first game here was in 1953 when they had the snowstorm. Oh, okay. I came from New Jersey with to, as a senior in high school, and that was my first game, the 1953 Fordham game. <laughs> And uh, then as a student, of course, uh, my years were entirely at, at Beaver Field. And uh, I've never had season tickets. Really? I, I go to games uh, on occasion as I can. And today at age age 81, I spend my game in front of a flat screen. Ah. I'm not, <laughs> that's very comfortable. Yeah, yeah it is. I, I don't like to admit that, but that's the case. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. You paid your dues. <laughs> okay, you paid your dues. Saturday's going to be 26. So <laughs> enjoy your flat screen. Please don't say that. <laughs> oh, it gets warmer during the game. They need fine. two layers of long no, underwear. No wind. Well, it's okay. When I did the Ohio State game, it was, what, 34 there? There's no heat in the booth. Yeah. Oh. I'm like, oh, that's great. <laughs> I said, I'm enjoying this. It's a lot of fun. I mentioned the scoreboard before. They've had, obviously, variations of it. There was one, the standalone scoreboard that was there in the late 60s into the early 70s, till an expansion. Then, obviously, the uh, more intricate boards have been put up, and now you get the video boards. Any challenge in putting those up based on the structure? Well, the big challenge, they did that in the uh, 99-2001 expansion. Yeah. The one on the north deck is separately supported. It's not supported right. on the deck itself. They actually had to weave a supporting structure up through the exist under the under the uh, the uh, pedestrian rampway yeah. to support that because the the deck wasn't designed to support it. Are any uh, of the seats attached here? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then of course, when the when the south expansion was done, they. Right. They designed it from the beginning to support the scoreboard. But right. They, I mean, that's a building. That's I mean, building. I mean, yeah. that is a building. I yeah. mean, the South End. Oh, so, it is. In yeah. fact, we one of our chapters in the in the book is when Beaver Stadium became a building. Yeah. And because uh, just talk to Bobby White. Yeah. And you find out that there this these things that nothing else happens there but seven games a year. <laughs> he can contradict that in a hurry. Lee, Harry, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Oh, book's Lair of the Lion. Lee Stout, Harry West. Frank Divers of the Fiesta Bowl, next half hour on News Radio 1070 WKOK.